I look at that process of what's going to happen with respect to a vaccine and still see a very you know, long period of time before those issues get addressed. And I would say that that period could be at least six months. You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast, where for just a few minutes of your day, we provide insights and ideas for keeping safe your most valuable asset, your people. I'm your host, Peter Steinfeld, SVP of Strategic Sales at Alert Media, and we are very fortunate to be joined today by Nancy Inesta, partner at the law firm of Baker Hostetler. She is, and I know this based on experience, incredibly talented and articulate when it comes to her area of expertise in the law, so I am really happy she's given us some time and she's here to share her wisdom. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Hi, Peter. It's nice to um, be here with you again. Oh, good, good. Well, uh, how have you been doing as this pandemic continues to unfold before us? Well, to be honest, I think that when we started talking about these issues back in February of this year, we had no idea um, that six months later, most of us would still be sitting at home um, working remotely, particularly here in California where I am. Um, So it's surprising. And the issues um, are really interesting because we've had various transitions throughout this entire six month period from getting people home to figuring out um, all the rules related to remote work and now continuing remote work or for those employers who are bringing employees back into the workplace. So it's given us really a lot of um, a lot of really good, interesting work in this area, which I think has been really fun. Um, but the reality is that it also has this element of being kind of hard times for everyone and a lot of a lot of hurdles that employers are having to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. Tremendous amount of unknown. I mean, I know <laughs> I didn't think I'd be sitting here working out of the house as long as we have. Um, so it's definitely been an, a lot of unknown for me. But real quick, before we dive into our topic on the legal challenges during the pandemic, could you just tell our listeners a bit about your background, your area of expertise, and really what's been keeping you and your team up at night over there at Baker Hostetler? Absolutely. So I'm a labor and employment attorney. Um, prior to COVID, most of my work was either in um, you know, employment regulations and laws as applied primarily in the state of California, but to some degree all over the country. We have clients that have employees everywhere. Um, we Starting in February of this year, I was tagged by my the employment group for my firm because we were doing a seminar in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. And I was luckily tagged as the person who was going to do basically a little blurb on COVID-19. We didn't have a ton of information at that time. There really were no regulations related just to COVID. And I was asked to give a brief overview of what the current laws were that could potentially apply. So I ended up kind of in this rabbit hole of COVID-19 um, in having to address for employers what they were having to deal with. Um, that turned into my role for the firm on our task force, which was really designed to give all of our clients and employers information related to what they needed 
do and what they needed to know in order to comply with any COVID-related regulations, either based in current law or laws that were being developed. Um, and I also serve on my firm's internal task force. So I really have also had the privilege, really, of having um, really to play a role in developing policies internally for the law firm that comply both with all of the laws across the country um, and really has given me an opportunity also to see all of the practical approaches. So I think that experience has really helped me because I will admit that I probably um, in the last six months have spent a good 30, 40, maybe sometimes 50 or more percent of my time advising on COVID-related matters, whether it's drafting policies, I'm putting together different protocols, advising on creative or different ways with respect to the workforce, what they can do, maybe what they would like to do, and really addressing for employers um, what they need in order to implement all that, including you know, getting whatever waivers they need from, from employees getting signatures on all their training documents, developing those training documents. So it's really been, um, it's really been an opportunity to really be in on just about every level of how this pandemic has impacted employers. Yeah. Well, it's great. Your, your exposure over this past six to nine months has been so broad and so deep that I think your experience is going to be very valuable to our listeners and it's because so many of them are wrestling with the legal challenges related to COVID-19 right now. So I think where I'd like to start is just by discussing the overarching decision that many companies are still facing, which is the how and when of returning to the physical workplace. So I guess to start, how is your firm handling that decision? And then what are you advising others to do? First of all, with respect to what our law firm is doing, um, because our law firm is situated in a lot of different states, where we have started and where employers should start is really being familiar with whatever laws and guidance apply to their particular space. And what has been so complicated for a lot of employers is that they, there's really needs to be a very wide bandwidth on people who are review, reviewing not just federal, but local guidelines, because I'll tell you, it really is the local guidelines that for every single office are driving how we implement an opening in that particular space. And whereas we have developed a general you know, overview or a general backdrop to what we want to do and potentially how we want it to do it, we have had to make concessions and do things differently in various offices based on that guidance. So for example, in California, due to the COVID situation here, the guidance is much more stringent than we've had in other locations. So in a lot of workspaces, even when you are an essential worker here in California, under the guidance that was recently developed by the state of California and released by the governor, you still have a component of whether or not it's practical for your employees to continue to work from home. So you have to be familiar with what the current what the current rules are to make sure that you're applying that assessment. Um, gone is basically this assumption that if you are essential, then your office can open up and you can go back in and you can bring your workers in. We still, at least in California, have that component of is it practical for employees to work from home? In other offices, 
we have been able to implement really a return to the workplace, not just for the attorneys, but for all workers. And although it's not 100% return, um, we have a lot of people right now working in our offices across the country. Um, one way we have done that, it's been a little bit creative, is to break the workforce into different sections or portions. So in most of our offices, what's happening is that a third of our employees are working one week. The next third of our employees are assigned to work the following week. And then the last third of our employees are assigned to work the third week. And basically everybody goes in um, consistent with what their turn is on a three kind of a three week rolling basis, which is working out really well. Um, with a little bit of wiggle room, of course, to allow employees who need to be the, in the office, who for some reason have a, an important or significant event that they need to be in the office that's more practical for them to do in the office, leaving a little bit of wiggle room so that that is allowed and people are able to do that. And of course, all of this consistent with whatever the local guidance is. And also consistent with, you know, the CDC guidance, which we are reviewing regularly. I probably look at the CDC regulations at least two or three times a week um, to note any changes, which, quite frankly, there have been some changes that are pretty significant even over the last month. So I think what I'm hearing you say is there's just a lot of flexibility that employers have to have right now. And there's no such thing as all or nothing it's get creative, find out what makes sense for you, both in the context of your organization and in the context of the rules and regulations and laws in your local area. Yeah. And Peter, the reality is that I really do am working with a lot of employers now who are making a choice not to come back. That mm -hmm. even with respect to the rules, of, there could be maybe, you know, certain workers that are allowed to go into the office because they have to deal with some of the essential running you know, behind the scenes of the business, which has consistently been allowed. So if you need people to go into the office to make sure that the remote services work, if you need people, of course, to go into the office to check the mail or to deal with the equipment, the safety of the equipment, the maintenance of the equipment so that the rest of the company can continue to perform whatever services they need to perform. Um, there is a lot of flexibility now, and I think employers are really looking at these issues critically, trying to protect their employees, and making decisions in, for some in a very conservative way where they're only placing those people that they really, really need. So instead of sending the entire tech department in, they have you know basically a situation where only a couple of people or one person, or it really is only as needed to have that one person in the office who can perform the work and are making decisions that they are not going to return the to the office before the end of the year or before the end of middle of next year. In fact, um, we have most recently heard of some employers who are postponing or, and saying that basically people will not come back to the office and they are not going to plan to have people be back in the office before sometime next year, whether it's July. I've heard as late as August, which is which is a really big decision to make for what is essentially going to be the next year of conducting business. Why do you think they're doing that? It seems to me that to push something out that far right now with just a blanket statement, is it, is it because there's legal fear or is it just we don't know yet, we're trying to calm everyone down to think they're not being forced into the office? I think that for every business, there's different reasons that motivate that. I think that for some, 
they have determined that they have been able to function um, remotely and they're utilizing those means and they're doing a really nice job of it and are finding that maybe they don't need to deal with kind of the issues that come with returning people to the office and the fears that come with that because it's not just from an employment perspective of, okay, what liability could this cause me? But also true pushback from employees who do not want to return to the workplace. And this has been a very unique situation, of course, in terms of, in terms of there's not, there are no answers. We really sincerely do not know when people will be able to return to the workplace in, in a way that resembles anything prior to February of 2020. Um, And I think in anticipation of really that unknown, this kind of stability of, okay, we're making this decision. This is how we're going to continue to function. So let's focus on doing this the best way we can in the time being. And we can revisit this at some point in the future that people feel much more comfortable with. Okay. Yeah, I guess it's better to have some kind of stability for a matter of months instead of it being day to day or week to week, which can cause anxiety in folks. So that makes sense. Yeah. It's very interesting because I think that one of these, you know, one of the benchmarks is when we have a vaccine. Yeah. But what what I keep advising is that even issues related to having a vaccine um, are, are have not been addressed yet. So the distribution of that vaccine, what the requirements are going to be related to any vaccine, and that includes in the workplace. So it's not, the vaccine is not like a magic pill that, you know, if it gets developed and is ready for distribution on, you know, August, you know, on September 30th is going to be like a magic pill that everybody can take. And then the next day, everything's going back to normal. Mm. I look at that process of what's going to happen with respect to a vaccine and still see a very you know, long period of time before those issues get addressed. And I would say that that period could be you know, at, you know, at least six months wow. of hammering out the issues related to having a vaccine out there that people can use that will potentially allow people to start heading back. Right. Well, in the meantime, until that becomes an issue that we have to contend with, it's really become clear over this last six months that certain groups are much more vulnerable uh, and high risk than others. And I know employers really want to protect people in high risk groups, but is it legal for them to outright say, hey, we're opening the office for people who want to come back unless you're in one of the following high risk groups? Like, can they Can they pick and choose who comes back based on their health status or category? Peter, that's a great question because you really cannot make that decision for the individual. Mm. Um, There are still protections in place. You cannot discriminate against anyone based on, you know, their disability, you know, any disability that they may have. You can't discriminate against people based on a medical condition that they might have. But the way that the law is right now really is that it's actually the employer's obligation to let people know who are coming back to work, hey, you could be at additional risk if you fall into any of these categories. And the categories include, you know, if you have certain medical conditions, if you're pregnant, depending on your age, um, even your weight, that these things make the ramifications of COVID either, you know, more extreme or less extreme. And 
most of the orders that I've seen, the state orders, have some component in their state orders that say, when you're training your people, you need to give them information about the symptoms, you need to give them information about who's vulnerable, you need to give them information about what they need to do to keep from contracting the virus, okay? So you give all that information. You can't tell them, if you fit into these categories, you can't come to work. Well, it seems like there's just so much unknown at this point, and people are just moving day to day, talking to the state, trying to figure out what they have to do and comply with. Has OSHA stepped in at all and provided any COVID-19 specific OSHA regulations that companies have to comply with? Um, the approach OSHA has generally taken, and I haven't reviewed to see if exactly every specific, you know, everything that specifically relates to, but if you go, for example, to OSHA's website, what they have done is outline these are the regulations that have implications in kind of in this COVID-19 environment, because what you find, again, is that a lot of the regulations they already have in place are very much tied to, tied to and can give guidance on what you can or can't do or what you're obligated to do with respect to COBRA. And that is because the entire premise of OSHA is that you have an obligation to keep your employees safe, including from, you know, airborne illnesses. Mm. So if there is a risk in, if there is a risk in the workplace that is created, whether it's from an outside element such as a virus or whether it's an inside element such as, you know, different chemicals that you use in order to perform the work, it still is the obligation of the employer to create an environment that is that that eliminates that hazard to the employee. So, so people ask, you know, oh, OSHA is really not implicated. It's like actually, yes, it is very much implicated. And if somebody comes into the workplace, and because you're not eliminating or you're not trying to alleviate that risk, becomes injured due to the risk that you did not eliminate or alleviate, there could be some liability for it, whether it's under OSHA whether it's under, as under civil negligence statutes. And then there's some states, and there's certainly some, some concept uh, that it also is a workplace injury um, and that it should be covered under the workers' compensation system. One thing that's unique here in California, the governor actually issued an order that basically says that if, some, if an essential worker is out there working, the presumption, if they do, happen to contract COVID is that they got it from work. So if you're working wow. in California and you're going into work, the presumption is that that is where you contracted it, which as you can imagine, isn't necessarily the case or it's not going to be the case in every situation. Wow. Well, that's interesting. And that it's a, it's a good segue into the next topic I wanted to cover, which is around employee health monitoring. It really seems to be the other half of the equation when it comes to reopening. So Clearly, organizations, they want to ensure that employees coming into the workplace are healthy, but, and there's always a but, that's why we have lawyers, right? <laughs> there, are, right. there are also like really serious legal and privacy concerns when it comes to your, your employees and, and health monitoring. So are there any limits on the type of health screening or health monitoring that employers can implement to protect their workplaces from COVID-19? Yeah. Peter, there's been a lot of leeway that's been created um, and that comes from the fact that COVID-19 
was designated a pandemic. And because it was designated a pandemic, and it's almost like an acknowledgement that there is a risk out there and that that risk can come into the workplace. And given that employers have a legal duty and obligation to try to mitigate the risk in the workplace for all of their employees, it has given them certain rights to ask employees questions about their health that they would not otherwise be able to ask. So when there is a danger, a direct threat to the health and well-being of the employees in the workplace, it really does expand what questions that you can ask. Now, that expansion does not mean that you can grill people about every um, medical situation or issue that they have. And I certainly had employers who said, okay, can we you know, give the list of things that make people vulnerable and have people check off everything that they could potentially fit into. Ah. And I said, no, you cannot do that. You can provide them that information. You still cannot delve into all of their personal and medical history and try to make determinations on whether or not that employee should stay out of the workspace. So going back to kind of your first point, But what I think a general rule of thumb is, is if there is a direct correlation to whether or not that employee from a COVID-related, COVID-19 related perspective poses a danger to the workplace, you can ask questions and you can conduct what what is actually a medical examination related to that. So first of all, you can require employees to be tested. Do you have COVID today or do you not? If you have COVID, we're not going to let you into the workspace. And you ha- and employers have the right to require that their employees be tested if that's an approach that they wanted to take. Another thing, do you have any symptoms of COVID? And these are what the symptoms are. And if you do have symptoms of COVID, you can require an employee to let the employer know that they are experiencing symptoms of COVID and then react responsibly. You don't let that employee into the workplace You follow the protocols on when that employee can return to the workplace. Those protocols can be found on the CDC website. um, And you follow the rules in order to keep your employees safe. Can you take people's temperatures? Yes, you can. That is one indication that somebody may have COVID. Now, it's an indication that you could have something else as well. You don't get to ask about that something else. So, for example, if somebody comes and says, I have a fever, you don't get to say, well, give me every reason you could possibly have a fever. Maybe there is a reason. Maybe they had a a tooth infection that is causing them to have a fever. If they volunteer that information, that is fine. But again, your inquiry is limited to those things that are are related to COVID-19. And if you kind of follow that as the guidepost, you should be okay in making those inquiries and asking the employees the information that you really need, that you need to have in order to maintain a safe work environment. What about storing all the information they collect as they're asking people about this stuff? Is it ephemeral? Are you supposed to get rid of it right after you talk to the employee or can you store it for a certain amount of time? And if so, how long? Do we even know yet? Um, There's definitely regulations on how long you have to maintain um, employee information. So a lot of states, you should definitely know in your state what the regulations are. Here in California, a lot of employee information as a default needs to be maintained. I think it's for approximately three years. 
So depending on what your um, state and, and state or city or county guidance is, you want to follow that. The next thing is that remember, if you have information related to an employee's symptoms, their temperature, um, you know, whether or not they were feeling well that, w- that day with respect to anything that was COVID related, that is confidential medical information. Mm-hmm. And it will garner the same, the same rules that any medical information you may have from your employee would you would expect to, to assert. So in a lot of states, you really do have an obligation to maintain that information separately, for example, from a person's personnel file. You have to limit you know, the number of people who have access to that information. So it really would be those people who really need to know that information because we really want to keep that sensitive information as private as possible. Um, so that would include doctor's notes. That would include any health certification that you have the employee fill out, which is a practice that a lot of employers are taking. In fact, it's a practice that even some businesses are taking. I don't know if anyone else has encountered this, but it's when you show up at a business or you show up at a different at a location um, and they say, can you please answer these questions before you enter? And it has the same types of questions. Do you have you had any of the symptoms of COVID? Have you been exposed to anybody with COVID? Do you have a temperature today um, that is considered a fever under the CDC, which is 100.4 degrees? And you get to check those boxes. And depending on what your answers are, you're then allowed entry into the location. Any of that information is confidential medical information, and employers have to be very careful to guard that information and to make sure that it's maintained um, confidentially. Well, I know you focus mainly on employment law, but this is interesting you bring it up because there's a local pizza place that I go to. Before they let me in now, they take my temperature and they ask me a series of questions. So from a, can you do that to your customers? I mean, clearly a customer can just choose not to do business there, but are you seeing is that legal? You know, I think that that, again, is going to depend on some of the local guidance. And if the, so for example, in a lot of the local orders, you see governors basically saying, hey, if you're a business, in order to protect your employees, you need to do a certain level of screening before you let people in. Because remember, this actually is in some ways tied to um, the protection of your employees. And those employees who are there, who are serving you, have some rights to be protected not just from fellow coworkers, but from customers themselves, which is why employers, businesses are allowed to ask some of these questions, why they're being allowed effectively to, you know, invade the privacy of of other individuals. And it's, especially here in the United States, it's something that we almost never thought we would see, that you would literally go out to the street and before letting a customer in, take their temperature to make sure that they don't have a fever. I mean, that really is something that is, especially in our culture and our environment, is very foreign. Um, But quite frankly, it's quite necessary. And I think it's part and parcel of um, obligations of businesses to keep their employees. That makes sense. And as I look back at what you said earlier, it sounds like overall, the guidance to people is to continue to embrace the frameworks that are out there like OSHA and things like that, all the legal frameworks that are there. That's the overarching thing they should look at. 
and then work closely with their states and their local council to figure out how things are changing and how to accommodate based on very COVID-specific things. Is that a fairly good way to sum it up? I think that's absolutely. Is Joe, remember, there's a lot of legislation in place that does apply and continues to apply. And don't forget about that, because with all of the COVID-related legislation, the different sick leave provisions, the, you know, Families First Coronavirus Response Act, and different versions of that that are popping up across the country. Um, can I always focus on California, but California just passed a law that, re- that, that employers in the food sector and also employers who have 500 or more employees um, could be obligated to give an additional 80 hours of supplemental sick leave for wow. co- certain COVID-related reasons. Now, not every not not everyone is going to be subject to that, but that specific legislation you need to comply with that. Note that that doesn't alleviate in any way your compliance with California's regular sick leave statute that also requires employers to provide a certain amount of sick leave to employees who work in the state. So you really want to make sure that you're not only focusing on that co- those COVID-related um, issues and the COVID-related legislation, and you're also doing whatever assessments you would normally do. When I tell people, I go think when they say, I have COVID, that it's almost like, what would I do if this person just came in and said, I broke my arm and can't work? Exactly. How would you handle it? Look for some of those principles, because not all of them, but some of them may apply and you may have some of the same obligations under the law. Well, that makes sense. Well, Nancy, I, I knew this was going to be great. You were going to get into a lot of detail. There's so much out there. Fantastic conversation. Really, thank you so much for sharing your insights and perspectives and all these legal challenges that people are going to have during the pandemic. Um, if anyone listening has follow-up questions for you on this topic in, in particular, or just employment law in general, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, if you go to Baker Hostetler, um, you can find me under Nancy Inesta. And my email is also ninesta, N-I-N-E-S-T-A at bakerlaw.com. And um, feel free to reach out to me. Um, We also have a really extensive um, blog that we have on the Baker Hostetler website that has some really fantastic information. I'm a regular contributor to that. And a lot of my colleagues who are also... um, really well-versed on this and have a lot of experience in this area, also contribute to all of the blogs on our website, including our coronavirus blog and what we call our employment spotlight. So there's a lot of information out there, but if you have any questions, um, happy for you to contact me. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much again for taking the time to join the Employee Safety Podcast. And to the rest of you out there, remember, nothing ever goes 100% according to plan in an emergency. So communication is incredibly important. If you can't communicate, you can't recover. Until next time. You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.